0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, guest host OSU student Molly Patterson will talk to Eric Olson, co editor of We Wanted to Be Writers.
1: I'm Molly Patterson, and I'm here with Eric Olson. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your new book, We Wanted to Be Writers, Life, Love, and Literature at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Sure. And you co-authored this book with Glenn Schaefer, right? Right. This book brings together the voices of about 30 writers, including John Irving, Sandra Cisneros, T.C. Boyle, and yourself, just to name a few. And um, you were all part of the community at Iowa in the mid-70s. I wonder if you could give just a little background on the Iowa Writer's Workshop?
2: It just celebrated its 75th anniversary, and it was the first writer's workshop. As we think of writer's workshops now in the country, it sort of created the model on which all subsequent writer's workshops have, have been based. Although in the, in the intro to our book by Bill Manhira, a poet who heads a writing program at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. As he says in the intro, people in the South Pacific were doing writers' workshops, not unlike the Iowa Writers' Workshop hundreds of years ago.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it sounded s- somewhat similar, although certainly a different venue, not quite the uh, the flat plains of Iowa.
2: Yeah, a nice white sand beach and palm trees. Yeah, <laughs> different.
1: I bet that would be a nice change. <laughs> yeah. Um, So in this book, you're looking at this group of writers and you were all there at the same time, um, vaguely, as I understand it, either as students or as faculty. Do you see this time as a sort of literary zeitgeist or th- this time and place? And you know, if so, what are some of the qualities that you think define it or that defined you as a group of writers at that time?
2: You know, in the mid 70s, when I got there, I started in the workshop in 75, so did Glenn. Some of us that I interviewed for the book were there a couple years before. The Vietnam War had just ended. An awful lot of us, uh, the guys anyway, who were in the workshop in the mid-70s had either served in the military, like Joe Haldeman and Alan Gergenis and Tony Bukowski, or had done everything they could to avoid (laughs) serving in the military. And we, uh, uh, you know, a lot of anti-war protesters and so on. And and actually, you know, uh, now that I think about it, that really never came up. I mean, we were... You know, whatever we were before Iowa, regarding the Vietnam War, it just wasn't something we talked about once we got there to Iowa. We were all writers together in the same boat. But I I think that um, our experiences in the years leading up up to our arrival in Iowa were shaped by Vietnam, certainly, and, and it certainly made its way into a lot of our writing, one way or another. Not mine so much, but I think... Joe Holliman, certainly.
1: Right. The book doesn't address necessarily the Vietnam War, some of the the events going on in society around you leading up to that time. There's certainly a section where, I believe it's Glenn Schaefer, your co-author, talks a lot about some of the things that you were responding to in terms of the critical world, sort of the advent of deconstructionism, and how some of you were reacting to that. When we were
2: in the workshop in the mid-70s, I think I could be wrong. My numbers could be wrong, but I think there were about 12 or 15 other graduate writer's workshops in the country, most of which had been started by former Iowa MFAs or, you know, by, by former students at Iowa. By the mid 70s, that postmodern deconstruction had theory uh, had uh, begun to infect English departments and around this country. And and I think a, the, the rapid growth of workshops after the mid-70s, I think, was in part due to the fact that a whole lot of people that wanted to read literature and write and think about literature, that's not what you did in English departments anymore. You read theory. And so a lot of people went to workshops in order to be able to read literature and write about literature and try to write some of it themselves yeah i think the de- i think the deconstruct that that theory that that movement toward theory in in all the english departments in this country it, it, i think it really did drive the growth of writers workshops
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way of of thinking about it. Certainly, a lot of the writers in the book did go on after the workshop to eventually, if not right away, teach in or sometimes even direct other MFA programs. I think one of the things that's very interesting about this book is that there's such a range of career paths that are represented by the writers you feature, and very few make a living solely off writing novels or short stories or poetry, which is mostly what you're writing at Iowa. Could you talk about some of the different trajectories that you and Glenn Schafer or any of the others have taken in the years after the workshop ended?
2: Yeah, well actually that was one of the things we set out to explore. Uh, one of the one of the questions I had at the, at the outset was, who quit writing and why and how? And, you know, I set out to find some people that had quit writing. Well, it turned out that nobody that I interviewed had actually quit writing. Uh, and a lot of them had other careers. A couple of them went into high tech. Doug Borson and Dennis Mathis in particular, they both, once they got their MFAs, um, they both uh, segued uh, uh, into the high-tech world. Uh, I had a good time to segue into the high-tech world, uh-huh. certainly got in on the ground floor, and good for them. Uh, Glenn went into business. I went into journalism, which is a, a, a sort of writing still. But everybody, in one way or another, a, a, as I discovered after I started doing these interviews, used what they learned at Iowa. In some way, in their work, whatever it might have been. Gary Iorio, he became an attorney. Um, Michelle Hunovan, she went into, uh, well, like me, into journalism and was a food writer. Still is, I think, but she's written her, her most recent novel, Blame, just came out to good reviews. Jenny Fields, whose fourth novel is about to come out has had a career in public relations. But everybody, one way or another, found and, and said this, uh, what they've learned in the workshop, they found it useful in, in whatever it was they were doing, doing in terms of, of being able to communicate, either in writing or verbally, or, um, or, or sort of having a, a faith and confidence in, in the creative process, if you will that allowed them to to sort of do good work in whatever it was their work might have been.
1: Yeah, there's a part in the book um, when you talk about the visiting writers who would come through the workshop. And I think you you might talk about uh, Kurt Vonnegut at that time and you say that they so often said, give up, but the odds of making it were so low. And I really, I loved your response. In the book you say, maybe they thought telling us to give up was wisdom Probably it was, but as much as anyone, these big-shot writers must have understood that writers can't help themselves sometimes. Writing's not a choice. Yeah, um, right. What do you mean exactly by writing's not a choice? Uh,
2: I, Well, I, I, you know, I mean, one of the reasons that, that everybody I interviewed, you know, I went out looking for people that had actually just quit, just broke the habit. Nobody had actually been able to break the habit, <laughs> you know, we were all. I think we all got into writing at one stage. Lot most, most of the people started writing pretty early in life, and 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 um, and they're still at it. And and even even guys that went into something that was totally unrelated to, to writing, like high tech world, um, they continued to do it on you know their odd, you know, whenever they had a ch- chance. Catherine Gammon became a Zen priest, um, but now she's writing again. Now actually some of us you know did quit writing entirely for, for long blocks of time, but we're all back at it. and it, it just seems like we can't help ourselves. and you really you really have to have a drive to, to want to write wherever that drive comes from, um, to, to keep at it because it's so frustrating sometimes. <laughs>
1: right just making yourself sit down and, and yeah. do the work
2: <laughs> right it's really hard work I mean to just sit there and and, um, and and there's 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 some people that have this this drive you know and, and we kind of explored where does this drive come from you know and I never really arrived at an answer but there was sort of a pattern in in that the way a young person comes to write usually it starts with with a lot of reading.
1: Right. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting when I was reading um, at that particular point in the book is that so many of you, it seems, found your inspiration, or I guess your love of the written word in science fiction, which oh, yeah, that was, was certainly unexpected. And I wonder if you see any parallels with today, um, the popularity of, well, certainly right now, there's the vampires and, and the zombies and all that. But but with Harry Potter, for example, do you think that the writers of the Iowa workshop, you know, 35 years in the future are going to be saying, yeah, I decided that I started wanted to write because of, of Harry Potter?
2: Well, you know, I think you're right. I think we'll find that. It'd be interesting to, to ask that question 35 years from now. I bet that will be the case, you know, and, and vampires, you know, you're a kid. You, you know, you these are, I mean, for, for kids, and I guess for some adults, you know, I mean, vampire books and zombie books are endlessly fascinating, and certainly Harry Potter. These are attractive to kids, and once they get hooked on reading, God knows where it's going to lead. Some of them might end up writing. And, you know, an awful lot of us at Iowa that actually did get their start reading science fiction, they don't write it now, they don't read it now, but it was like a gateway drug in a way, and it just led to, they just took it the next step.
1: Right. And ultimately, well, not ultimately, but at some point that led all of you to Iowa, where, of course, you did a great deal of writing. But one of the aspects of the book that I most enjoyed was actually hearing about memories that don't necessarily have much to do with writing or the workshop itself. In a way, it lets the reader become part of your community and to get to know the personalities and the quirks of some of those individuals. One moment that struck me was when you were reminiscing about Friday afternoon boxing sessions. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
2: Uh, Well, you know, in the mid 70s, you know, for some of us, actually Hemingway was in some ill repute in certain circles, but there was a Actually, somewhere in the book, I think we talk about the two schools. There was the, the New Yorker school and the Hemingway school. And I happened to be of the Hemingway school. Hemingway boxed. I don't know. We just There were, there were just some of us, me, Glenn Schaefer, which, and Tony Bukowski in particular, the three of us, we, we were, oh, and Irving with his wrestling, of course. John Irving was, you know a wrestler and, and uh, uh, there was there so there was that cultural group that uh, just had this fondness for all things Hemingway and Hemingway box and by God we were going to box too so and and we had all had uh, a little bit of experience before Iowa with boxing and fighting of one sort or another Glenn of course went to a tough high school and so you know he was always fighting <laughs> and uh, I had been in the martial arts for years. And Tony had been in the Marines in Vietnam. And, you know, he, he'd done some boxing, too. So we just every Friday, we just decided it was actually Tony started it. He declared that all writers should box at least three rounds once a week. That it was good <laughs> for the soul. And so every Friday afternoon, we go up to the wrestling room. Iowa had a famous like the number one wrestling team in the in the country. And I think it was I think it was I don't recall if Dan Gable was the coach then. He might have been, or assistant coach. He had just, I think, finished his own Olympic wrestling career not too long before, but I could be wrong about the dates. But anyway, after the wrestlers cleared out, we'd go up to the wrestling room and do some sparring. It was a lot
1: of fun. You talk about how you wanted to invite John Irving, who I guess was your teacher, actually, yeah, yeah, to join yeah, this, these yeah. boxing sessions. And um, I guess you weren't a- able to snag him in the end. But you say that one of the reasons you wanted to ask is you knew that he wrestled and that you would also see him jogging along the Iowa River. And I'm quoting here, wearing nothing but his red Speedo and running shoes.
2: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's certainly uh, quite an image. (laughs) I think these little flashes that you give us, they reveal something sort of goofy or even vulnerable about writers with a capital W like John Irving. And it seems like this balances the more serious reflection that we get about what it really means to be a writer. The title of the book, We Wanted to Be Writers, is, I think, a pretty provocative statement in a way. And I was, I was wondering, did you come up with that title first, or do you see that as the central concept of the book?
2: No, it wasn't the first title. I think the working title was 30 years on, but nobody, including our publisher, much cared for that. And I'm not sure. Sh- actually, the, the actual title that we ended up with is something that came up, came up fairly late in the process. Uh, I don't remember quite when or how we arrived at that, but once it, it popped up, everybody liked it.
0: You're listening to Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University with guest host, OSU student Molly Patterson, speaking with Eric Olson, co-editor of We Wanted to Be Writers. For more about our guests, visit www.writerstalk.org. Now, back to their discussion of the workshop.
1: Well, it's certainly interesting reading about the workshop and who was there at the time. And we get a little bit, I think, of the gossip. There's a lot of range of reaction to what Iowa did for how it helped develop or sometimes harm, it seems, um, some people's sense of themselves as writers. The workshop sounds a bit like a boys club back during that time. And in the book, Jenny Fields, she says, the workshop had issues when I was there. For instance, my first year they decided they wanted a woman teacher and they brought in Jane Howard, a journalist. She didn't write fiction at all. It was so embarrassingly wrong headed. And I was wondering certainly, some of the other writers, Sandra Cisneros and Joy Harjo in particular, don't seem to have very fond memories. Do you think that this dynamic was something that was apparent at the time, or is it something that's come out more in the years since you've left Iowa?
2: Oh, you, you mean looking back at Iowa in the mid-70s and, and the dynamic then, or were we aware of it at the time? I certainly wasn't, but I was a guy, and I think guys were the last to notice. Now, my wife was certainly aware of it. Well, that, that's my point, uh, is, is that, uh, that, you know, I didn't notice this dynamic because I'm a guy, and, and we just don't notice. But my wife, who was in the workshop two years before me, she was certainly aware of it. And I think it's changed quite a bit. We were at the AWP meeting last February, and and this question was was in fact raised at a panel discussion uh, about this kind of um, sexism that existed years ago, and and not only in the Iowa Writers' Workshop, but others. And, and and I think the consensus is that it's changed quite a bit in the years since. Certainly yeah women in, in, in the our writers workshop now than the were when we were there right it was kind of a it's an old boys club but even then I, in the mid 70s I think that was beginning to change we meaning guys I don't think we were as aware of it as the women were
1: I think another issue that you might see that on is certainly more representation now of people of color but I think there are a lot of changes that are happening in creative writing programs that are out there right now you mentioned that there were maybe 10 or 15 at the time, and now there are hundreds, it seems. Um, We have one here at OSU, um, of which I'm a member, and we accept, I think, a total of 10 to 15 students every year across three genres, while Iowa accepts, I think, 100, it seems. So could you talk a little bit about what it feels like to be in a community that is so large of so many talented writers? Um, Was it overwhelming or was it exciting?
2: Well, for me personally, I liked it. You know, the nice thing about Iowa, the fact that it's so big, is that you can find your niche in, in there. You know, I had Tony and Glenn and a few other guys that, you know, we all became good friends and lifelong friends. And, you know, we boxed and drank beer together at the mill. And and uh, so, it, it, though it was a big program, we had our own little group that we could work with and socialize with. And I think everybody tended to find that group of people with whom they, they fit in most comfortably. Am I answering your question? I'm not sure I am.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. How much have you stayed in contact then over the years? Is it more your smaller group that you've stayed in contact with? Was this the first time that you had talked to some of the people that are featured in the book?
2: Quite a few. Uh, well, when I first started working on it, I. Uh, I started calling up folks that I had been in touch with ever since Iowa. Uh, there were quite a few, Glenn, Tony, Doug Unger, Don Wallace, Mindy Pennybacker, you know, and, and told them what I was uh, up to and and then um, asked them, you know, there were a few people that we knew in common that I'd lost touch with. And, you know, I'd say, hey, do you know how to reach uh, so-and-so? Oh, yeah, they, they're in touch with so-and-so. And, and you know, it really didn't take much trouble at all to contact these people and, and some people that I, you know, re- I really hadn't talked to in 30 years, 35 years. They remembered me and, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. For instance, I had been to the, um, the workshop's 50th anniversary celebration, too, and ran into a lot of people. So, it wasn't like I hadn't seen or talked to everyone, you know, a whole lot in 35 years, for mm-hmm. some 25 years. And, And every now and then, you know, you bump into somebody at a reading or some literary event of some sort or another. But it's a network that everybody is is closely linked, if not directly through one or two classmates.
1: Yeah. And I imagine, too, that you followed the careers of Alan Garganess or T.C. Boyle, that in some ways you're still very much connected by the fact that you were all at Iowa at the same time and have seen how their writing careers have progressed.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. For instance, I hadn't talked to TC for 35 years, basically. But when I contacted him about the book and reminded him who I was, and and, uh, yeah, he was happy to do it.
1: So did you sit people down in a room and talk to them? Or how exactly did you conduct this conversation?
2: Well, various ways. Uh, Thank God for email. A lot of it was done by email. I'd send them questions. And they would being writers, they were happy to write answers. In some cases, at great length, and uh, other folks preferred to do it by phone. And I also did as many as I could in person. For instance, I I interviewed Alan Gregginess in person in North Carolina. Spent a couple of days at his place and had a great time. So then, you know, I taped the interviews, transcribe the the interviews and, and edited them and, and, and sent, sent them back to Alan to sort of review and, and okay and ask more questions by email and did uh, some work with them over the phone and work with them by email. And so that was fairly typical. We do work by phone, work by email and when possible in person.
1: Have any of the writers seen the book now since it's come out? Have you had any feedback from them? Sort of seeing this chorus of voices that comes together, certainly it's different than sitting down one-on-one and just having the conversation. So, have you heard from any of them?
2: No, not yet. I'm not sure how many have actually seen the book, but I sent the manuscript to everybody months ago because I wanted them to see what I was... Well, I mean, I, I mean it, for, for each individual, I, I made sure that they had a chance to review their excerpts and, and in context. And then a few months ago, when I had the whole manuscript completed, I sent it to everybody... And I heard back from a few people, and and overall, they were happy with how it had turned out. And and pleased that I didn't misquote them any more than any journalist misquotes the people he's interviewing. So, so, uh, I'm actually waiting for the publisher to send me some books so that I can send copies myself to everybody I interviewed. Mm -hmm. And and I, I don't have the books yet. And I don't know how many of the folks I interviewed actually have the books now.
1: Well, one thing that I liked about the book was the organization that it has, where you sort of start with the inspiration, how you all became writers, and then You move to Iowa, we get a lot of perspective on the classes there and the social dynamic. And then at the end, there's a lot of talking about the future of literature, um, Mm. what it means to be a successful writer, but then also where people see literature going. And I know that this is something that often brings out the pessimist in a lot of writers, so much talk of how it's impossible to make it writing poetry or short story and the novel maybe is going away next. I liked Doug Unger's response to this. He says, Young writers need to avoid buying into the notion that writing is undervalued because the market doesn't value it. I think literature is more valuable now than it ever was. And let's put the emphasis on value as a humane concept completely detached from marketplace values. Do you feel like that sums up the perspective that a lot of you have, or is that sort of wishful thinking? Doug's
2: terrific, and I think he's right on. And I think it's a view that is shared by everybody. Also, that pervasive tone of pessimism you noted, I think writers have been pessimistic since the Sumerians or whoever it was stuck sharpened sticks (laughs) in a piece of wet clay, you know, and invented writing. I think all writers tend to be pessimistic, but also they wouldn't do it without a great deal of hope. And Doug, bless his heart, expressed that, you know, I think better than any of the rest of us did.
1: Thinking about that and thinking now, I guess it's 35, almost 35 years afterwards. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the lasting impact that the wor- workshop has had on your life? And I'm also curious if that meaning has changed over the years or if it's stayed a sort of constant thing.
2: Oh, my God, what a question. Uh, <laughs> well, me personally, uh, gosh, yeah, when I got out of the workshop, I was determined to write a novel and or novels, you know, which of course would be bestsellers. And, and so I got into magazine writing specifically to support that habit. And uh, I ended up being a magazine writer for years and then an editor and along the way wrote a few nonfiction books and um, was always plugging away at one novel or another. But, you know, when you spend all day writing journalism, it's kind of hard to spend the weekends and evenings working on fiction. So, you know, I didn't finish a whole lot of fiction, but. The desire to to write fiction that, you know, was certainly nurtured and strengthened when I was at Iowa has shaped my entire life and the decisions I've made about my career. I've always tried to do things that allowed me the time and freedom to write fiction. That said, I became a journalist at a time when, when the new journalism was hot and journalists were expected to sort of use the novelist techniques in the journalism. And, and so I found journalism to be quite as, as satisfying from a writer's viewpoint as, as fiction. And plus, I got paid to write the journalism, which really added to the fun.
1: <laughs> and that certainly never hurts, does yeah, it? Yeah, Well, thank you so much, Eric, for uh, speaking with us today. It's been a oh, real sure. pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with guest host OSU student Molly Patterson and her guest Eric Olson, co-editor of We Wanted to Be Writers. For more about our guests, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch some of our interviews either at www.ohiochannel.org or by checking television listings for our broadcast times. For signed books and interview DVDs of select Writer's Talk guests, visit the Writer's Talk section of the Ohio State University Bookstore. Join us next week for Jay Douglas, author of Everything You Need to Write Great Essays You Can Learn from Watching Movies, who will address also why students don't like to write.
3: Well, I had been doing... Um, workshops for high school students, high school seniors who were writing their personal statements for their college applications. And I'd been doing that for about 20 years. And I realized that to them, writing anything, not just the personal statement, was this tremendously stressful uh, procedure. And um, I started to ask myself why and experiment with different things during the, the workshops. And I found out three things. Number one, uh, I don't know how it was when when you were in school, but when I was in school, if you did something wrong, you usually wound up having to write a hundred times, you know, I will not talk in class, <laughs> I will not pass notes in class, whatever. So we've learned that writing is a punishment. Uh, the second thing I discovered was that writing was used in school as a means of testing memory. You know, you'd get this question on an essay exam, um, what happened when George Washington crossed the Delaware to take on the Hessian troops at Trenton? So you weren't being asked to come up with anything creative. You were being asked to remember what happened. You knew all the participants, you knew where it happened. Maybe you knew when it happened. You were learning that there was a correct answer to your writing. And if you got that correct answer, you did very well. And if you didn't, you know, that's what C's D's and F's were for on (laughs) report cards. And the third thing is that that, the focus was on putting words on paper. So what you had was writing was turned into an event. If you had to write a 500 word paper for school and you were going to go to bed at midnight, you knew that if you wrote a hundred words an hour, you could start that paper at seven o'clock at night and you'd be in bed before the tonight show was half over. All right. So, so that's the, 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 the context in which people were writing, which is really an anathema to being a creative. So, I started to look for ways to help students around this. And I realized I couldn't do that by giving them examples from literature and from writing be- and other people's writing because students didn't read the way we read. They, they don't absorb the material the same way. They're looking for shorter sound bites on paper, if you will. Uh, that wasn't going to work. But I did know from teaching, I teach college, uh, I teach film and, and um, television and screenwriting in college, that students knew a heck of a lot about how movies were made. And I don't just mean they could go to a movie and decide whether they liked it or not. They they looked at bonus material on CDs. They they read the online fan magazines. They knew the innards of movies. So I began to use the movie making process as a metaphor for writing, and began teaching writing as a process that you had to do over time and not an event that you did the night before. And from that came uh, came this book.
0: That's Jay Douglas, author of Everything You Need to Write Great Essays You Can Learn from Watching Movies. So watch a few movies before you tune in next time on Writer's Talk. And from the fourth floor of Mendenhall Lab on the Ohio State University campus, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.